Because the interesting thing is the kind of AI that we're doing, it's not primarily about programmers. Two-thirds of our staff are actually non-programmers. I invented a term, I call them AI psychologists, that understand the brain of the AI, basically. AI psychologists, and their background is linguistics and cognitive psychology. For five years, we basically just were in development mode to make the system more capable and smarter. I'm happy now to launch the second generation of, of our intelligence engine in the marketplace. I'm Peter Voss. I'm founder and CEO and chief scientist of iGo.ai. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Peter Voss decided to make software smarter by creating and improving its general intelligence. All this and more on Code Story. Peter Voss fell in love with software after starting a hardware design company. He moved to America 25 years ago and rapidly connected with interesting people, leaders in the field of nanotechnology, AI, longevity, futurism. In fact, he got very involved with futurism, following tech that could repair damage in your body and truly conquer aging. His target is to live long enough to take benefit from these life-extending technologies. So he practices calorie restriction and is exploring cryonics. For fun, he rides motorcycles, specifically his 1,000cc BMW racing bike. But not too long ago, he found himself struck by how dumb software is, or better put, how narrow. So his mission for the last 25 years has been to make software smarter. This led him to dig into the current definitions for what is knowledge and our relationship with psychology to deeply understand cognition and intelligence so he could understand what we know. He came up with a design for an AI centering around the phrase AGI, Artificial General Intelligence. This is the creation story of IGO. Basically, my mission has been really for the last 25 years to see how can we make software more intelligent so I, I took five years off to study all different aspects of intelligence, uh, natural and, and, and artificial, starting with even philosophy, epistemology. What is knowledge? How do we know anything? What is our relationship to reality? How can we be certain of things? How do we learn? And then uh, cognitive psychology, how do children learn? What do IQ tests measure? Are they meaningful? You know, how does our intelligence differ from animal intelligence? So really trying to deeply understand cognition and intelligence in order to be able to figure out how we can build artificial intelligence. Obviously studied what other people had done in, in AI over the decades. So during that five-year period, I came up with a design for an AI. And one of the fundamental insights was that what currently is being done in the field of AI is really narrow AI. It's basically lost its way from the original intent of when the, the term artificial intelligence was coined 60 years ago, where the idea was, can we build a thinking machine, a machine that can think and learn and reason the way humans do? 
And that, of course, turned out to be really, really hard. So over the decades, that dream has basically been abandoned. And what the field of AI has done is to build narrow applications, you know, like a chess playing machine or traffic uh, optimization or container optimization or medical diagnosis or whatever. But it's really external intelligence that you are, you're taking the programmer's intelligence or the data scientist's intelligence and turning that into code or turning it into a model. The intelligence doesn't reside in the software. The intelligence is really external some a human basically figures out how to solve the problem and then builds code and we really my so my insight was we need to get away from that and get back to the original intent to have a machine that has the intelligence internally that can learn and reason and learn new tasks by experimenting by interacting with the world by thinking about things and and so on so in 2001 i got together with a few other people in fact two other people and we coined the term artificial general intelligence agi to to sort of signify that move you know to building thinking machines again because we felt that technology had now advanced hardware and software technology advanced to a point where we could actually go back to to pursuing that original dream of AI. And um, that's really what my company, Igo AI, is about, and our product, Igo, is about, which is the early, the first stages of actually building an artificial general intelligence. I'm hesitant to call our current product AGI. It's really proto-AGI, but the principles on which it's designed are inherently, it's inherently designed to be able to scale and improve by learning and adding reasoning and, and, and so on. Very interesting. Tell me about the first product. So the the MVP, you know, how did you bring it to life? What sort of tools did you use and what sort of decisions and trade-offs did you have to make to bring it to life? I've actually found C Sharp to be a fantastic language to develop in. Been using it for 20 years now and it just keeps improving. So I'm I'm very happy with that framework for for what we're doing. The the term MVP are actually dislike the idea somewhat of how much VCs and, and funders always talk about, you know, how quickly can you bring a product to the market and, and so on. And it seems to be more speed than quality that the focus, you know, how quickly can we see that you sign up a bunch of people that use it, you know, and then maybe we can sell your company to Google or Microsoft or, or something. Whereas I think quality products really require a lot of thought and development. You know, obviously, I'm, I'm generalizing somewhat. The, the easy stuff, lots of people do. It's, you know, the hard stuff that really takes a, a, a bigger investment and, and bigger foresight that's much harder. And it's not really sort of a quick, you know, how quickly can we get something to market? Uh, 2001, I started my first AI company and hired about 12 people. And for five years, we were in R&D mode, basically turning the, the theory, the ideas that I had into initial prototypes. And uh, over that five, six year period, we actually developed a cognitive engine that we were then able to, that was powerful enough to, to be able to commercialize it. And then 2008, I launched the first company called Smart Action. And what Smart Action does is uses that engine in call center automation to give you a better experience. Everybody hates these things when you call into a company and uh, you talk to a computer and, you know, it's just a frustrating experience. So we elevated that very significantly in that it remembers what you said earlier in the conversation. You can speak a natural language and, and, uh, and so on. 
So that that was the first commercialization after many years of development. And uh, Smart Action is, is, is quite successful. But the trade-offs that are, are, are made was that once you start a commercial company, and Smart Action is, uh, is a SaaS model. So at that time, cloud services weren't really robust enough and accepted enough. So we had to build our own data centers. Basically, all of our energy went into building the infrastructure, robust infrastructure, you know, with redundancy, reliability, security, and all of that. And it sucked all of the sort of energy and resources were sucked into that. And we, we didn't actually have the ability to continue increasing the IQ of the system because it was already much better than the competitors. So the commercial pressure was basically our infrastructure now has to compete with, with the big boys. And that was a bit frustrating. So after about five years, I, I exited the company to start Igo.ai to again be able to focus on cranking up the IQ. And so again, I hired a new team of, of about 12 people. And we, for five years, we basically just uh, were in development mode to make the system more capable and smarter. And last year, we, we got to a point where I said, okay, I'm happy now to launch the second generation of, of our intelligence engine in the marketplace. And this is what Igo.ai does. So you did some research. You're basically in R&D mode for five years. What was the trigger to say that it was good enough? You know, they, they're obviously competing pressures. On the one hand, I had enough money to, to, to do this for five years and, and, you know, pay staff from my previous exit. But I couldn't afford to have a, a bigger team. So there was a constraint. I mean, if, I, if I'd been able to hire more people, the R&D phase would have been a bit shorter. So the, on the one hand, it was, yes, this is really much more capable than anything out there you know, competitors are offering um, and versus also the increasing pressure of, okay, we need to start making some money. So then, okay, so you're working on it for for five years and that's that's the time frame you had set out. Tell me about how you progressed the product through those five years. How did it, how did it grow and evolve uh, in a little more detail? The, the second generation, you know, I started with a new team, so probably took a year or two to actually get the right team together, to get them trained up. Because the interesting thing is the kind of AI that we're doing, it's not actually primarily about programmers. Two thirds of our staff are actually non-programmers. I invented a term, I call them AI psychologists that understand the brain of the AI, basically. AI psychologists and their background is linguistics and cognitive psychology. So it was, you know, basically training people on some completely new science technology that inherently took a while. And then it was a matter of everything we'd learned in the previous 10 years or so to basically rebuild the system, to, you know, rewrite all of the, the, the systems, but with what we'd learned. And, you know, and that process just took two or three years to incorporate all the new ideas, the improvements we, we had. You know, once we had that working, then it was, okay, what additional features can we put in? And they're sort of, they're on a scale of cognitive abilities. The most fundamental are that you can understand natural language for, for our product because we're natural language focused. So was being able to understand a very wide range of conversations and utterances and to be able to respond correctly to them. 
but then memory having memory of you know what people said earlier whether it's a few sentences ago or last week or last month or last year to be able to have that memory and to be able to use it and this is a, a huge shortcoming of all of the current chatbots you know like Siri and Alexa and all of the commercial chatbots from the big companies they have no memory they don't remember what you said two sentences ago the second thing is they don't have deep understanding they don't have deep parsing so they're just pattern matching so literally if you say i hate uber don't ever give me uber again it'll still trigger the uber app you know because this is just okay sounds like you want uber that's kind of the closest the closest match and they can't learn interactively you know if you say something as simple i'm going on holiday to oregon next week they'll just they wouldn't know what to do with it they cannot learn interactively which is actually a really really severe limitation they they simply cannot learn something new interactively unless they were very specifically programmed to look for some key phrase or key word that they, that they can learn so it's it's basically getting those cognitive abilities working properly in an integrated way and to do it in a commercially viable way that you know your responses that the system is responsive within sub second basically uh, has sub second response time so there was some magic we had to do on the engineering to to get that all to work and so it was basically just building a, a bigger and bigger set of tasks and challenges and tests that we we generated ourselves that we set ourselves and then basically solving those problems iterating and then about 2 years 2 years ago i again got to a point where i said okay i think we we just about ready to commercialize this now and then we started looking at you know what the marketplace is what people are looking for what competitors are offering and and start talking to to different customers different industries and then last year we actually launched the product commercially I'm interested in how you built your roadmap um because it sounds like so you said 2 years ago you decided okay it's ready to be commercialized and then during that 3 year span you're working on the product you're adding features but how are you determining okay what's the most important feature to put in first over you know later and how are you determining that now now that you're now that you've commercialized the product and it's it's out in the world it's actually a, a very interesting point and and quite a tricky one because when you're working in isolation not commercially driven but you're working really more like an R&D team or development team you setting your own tasks of you know what problems do you want to solve what are you going to be working on in the first iteration the first company that was you know very much uncharted territory for for me so i had to kind of guess well what are the general capabilities that you expect in a conversation so it was again we're getting back to the agi artificial general intelligence you know what what are general capabilities you expect an intelligent agent to have when you have a conversation but when the rubber hits the road when you actually commercialize you find that quite a few of the assumptions that you've made you know are, are wrong some of the things you thought were important aren't and and things that you didn't think were important are uh, so and that helped a lot now in the second generation in in having that commercial experience and already knowing well what do you really need when you have a product versus what do you sort of theoretically need or generally need to build an intelligent system that converges um to a, to a point where basically the, the development roadmap that we have from, from a theoretical point of view and the development roadmap we have from from a customer need or market need they basically converge 
And now that we, you know, fully commercial, obviously a lot of our development is driven by customer requirements, specifically what, where, where to put our, our focus. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit from the product and the roadmap to your team. So how did you build your team? And, you know, some of it sounds like it may have been in historical relationships, but what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join your team? I look primarily for having the ability, the, the sort of cognitive ability, the intelligence the, uh, to, to be able to really understand what we're trying to do. That That is sort of a fundamental point. Experience in the field in AI or so is, is almost a negative factor because anybody who's worked in the field of AI for any significant period of time will be so entrenched in the narrow AI domain that they have to unlearn so much. So I actually prefer to get people who haven't worked in AI. And one of the, the main criteria has always been people that are really excited about what we're doing, you know, to to take artificial intelligence to the next level. You know, the team, I have an, an awesome team now. Most of the people on the team have been with us four years or more. They really wouldn't want to do anything else. It'd be boring for them to work on narrow AI or, or, or something else. It really requires a lot of persistence. What we're doing is really, really difficult and a lot of naysayers, you know, and whether it's VCs or potential customers or whatever saying, well, hey, you guys aren't doing deep learning. You're not doing machine learning, what everybody else is doing. So having a team that really believes and understands our, our approach, that's really of primary importance. I really like that. I really like that you're looking for people that maybe don't have the experience and and perhaps com what comes out of that is other perspectives and looking in different areas coming into the field of AI and being able to solve problems a little bit a little bit differently yes yes absolutely and I, and I think it, it kind of requires that obviously we have some people who you know have worked in, in, in AI and bring that perspective as well. And then in, in terms of academic credentials, well, my, my own background is I uh, actually had to start working at 16. I didn't finish high school. So my own perspective is that, you know, you can do okay <laughs> without that. So um, I, I appreciate both types of kind of background. So let's, let's switch back to the product. So you built the product for, you know, three years, started to go through the commercialization process for a couple, and now it's out in the, out in the wild. Throughout that time period, either, you know, early days development or development now, how did you approach scalability? How did you factor in that into, into the early days and into now? Or, or is it something that you're just now getting to the point where you have to think about it? It's a it's a mix of both. The inherent scalability of our architecture is actually very very good, and um, our current product we don't offer this as a SaaS service, so we don't have to worry about creating that SaaS infrastructure. We actually deploy it behind our customers' firewall, so it's basically we give them a, a copy of the brain as an as an image essentially and help them integrate it into their existing infrastructure nowadays we're dealing with large companies uh, exclusively at the moment so all of the large companies are using cloud services so we basically help them integrate it into their infrastructure and deploy it within their cloud so that eliminates uh, a lot of the scalability security 
redundancy issues, they're already taken care of, which makes this a lot easier than in you know, the first generation where we had to build our own data center. Our architecture inherently is that each conversation is handled by a separate process. And each customer relationship or end user that's interacting with the system, again, is, is a separate unit. So you can basically spin up millions of these in, in the cloud. So that part of the scalability is, uh, is, is actually much, much easier now with the technology available and the approach we've taken, the sort of non-SaaS approach. But yes, there is an awful lot of work to be done uh, to deal with the scalability aspects of instrumentation, reporting, you know, and, and all, of, all of that to, you know, if you want to service a million customers or 10 million customers, your reporting and databases and all of that have to, have to be geared up for that. You have to think that through and, and have the right tools to be able to analyze things and, and, and so on. And, and that's something we, we now are putting a lot of effort into, and we hadn't really done that before. We said, well, once we go commercial, our, our focus will shift onto that, and that's, yes, exactly what's happening now. That makes sense. But, but do I understand right? So you, it, you were, your solution is an on-premise solution? Uh, yeah, you could call it on-prem, uh, but of course, on-prem in the customer's cloud from, from a practical point of view. Yes, exactly. Okay, but in the customer's cloud. That's interesting. That, that's really a, an interesting um, approach. I really like that. I think it's the future of software for large companies. Large companies don't actually like using SaaS services because you have you know, all of these potential security holes and, and things. Uh, they'd much rather deploy the technology behind their firewall. And uh, so I, I think that turned out to be a really good decision. Uh, this, of course, will only work for companies, uh, you know, at a certain at a certain level, you know, that, that have their own sort of infrastructure and, and support teams. So as you step out on the balcony and look across all you've built with iGo, what, what are you most proud of? Just the level of intelligence that we've achieved I'm proud of the perseverance, the, the vision that I had 20 years ago, really, of trying to build real intelligence, real AI, and um, pursuing that, you know, against sort of against all odds in, in a way, because, uh, you know, people say, well, no, this is impossible what you're doing using wrong approach. And, you know, we really are going against the, the, the grain here of what, what other people are doing in AI. So seeing the, the level of intelligence that we've achieved in our system and after all of these years and the commercial experience that we have, being even more confident now that we're on the right track to get closer and closer to human intelligence and to provide the kind of intelligence you really want from AI, that feels pretty good. Let's flip the script a little bit. Um, tell me about a mistake you made and how did you and your team respond to it? I think the biggest mistake I, I made in Smart Action in my first commercial company, AI company, was not finding the right partners, key staff in the company and compromising on that. Also, I was relatively new in America at the time, so I didn't have the network and the contacts to find the right people. I should have put more effort into finding the right core team in the company. I struggled with that. Uh, we didn't really have the top management, the core management team was never strong enough. It was sort of largely on, on my own shoulders. 
that makes it very hard to scale the company. Uh, over time, we did manage to, to to get there, but it took much longer than it it, it should have. You know how how the the staff responded to that. I I must say I've 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 always been really you know happy about people working for me at um, or working with me on the project. So even though we lacked severely in sales and marketing. In, in particular, the team was always behind the implementation team and development team. We're always very supportive and sort of living with the limitations. And if you don't have strong sales and marketing, you end up taking on customers that are not very profitable and that are a lot of trouble, basically. So you really want to have a, a strong marketing person, sales marketing uh, team, to be able to get you the the right customers. So let's switch to you, Peter. Name a you know a CEO, CTO, architect, really really any person. Name a person that you look up to and why. Over the years, I I can't say that uh, over the decades that there is sort of one person. It's it's really many different people. But I, I must say, in the last few years, I'm I'm really in awe of what Elon Musk is doing. I mean, that is it's just amazing what what he has achieved in so many areas by thinking outside of the box, thinking, and then the the confidence to be able to pursue that. That's that's amazing. And um, yes, I mean, he obviously has some quirks, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, I, that that is something I'd wish to emulate to be able to be even bolder and in stepping into into new areas and doing new things. Of course, it helps to also have a few tens of millions or hundreds of millions to pursue your your wild wild ideas. You know, sure, that certainly does help. <laughs> so, if you could go back to the beginning of Igo, what would you do differently, or where would you consider taking a different approach? The thing that springs to mind is really the the thing you asked me about the the mistake is team getting the right team you know uh, ideally if you can I've over the years I've had some some of my business I've had really good partners you know were partners in the business had you know significant shareholding and so on that is ideal but of course they have to be the right partners so, you know otherwise it can be very detrimental to business but whether they're partners in the business or key employees having a strong core team I think that's probably the sort of the biggest thing I would do do differently is to try much harder to to get that right right team together because that allows you to scale you have to be able to rely on key people in your company to be able to delegate so what does the future look like for Igo the product and for your team that's actually very easy very clear we have just such an enormous opportunity Everybody wants our product, and of course, big companies are reluctant to deal with a small company at the moment. We are 16 people. We are right now very rapidly. We're hiring aggressively, and we're very rapidly growing. The future really is to to scale the company up as quickly as we can without screwing up too badly. <laughs> you know, you you do need to be on that borderline again, Elon Musk. If you, you've got to fail early and often. But of course, if you if you have customers, you don't want to fail too much. Um, so your your failures should be hopefully hidden, or your customers should be protected from your failures. But is is basically to continue innovating aggressively. We know what we need to do. We're really no longer in an R and D phase. We don't really need to do much additional research. It's more development. 
if I had a few hundred people now, I, I would know exactly what what parts of our intelligence engine they could work on. Uh, at the moment, we um, concentrating on the text input, uh, text conversations, speech is uh, speech convert to upgrade that to speech conversations is next on the roadmap. But there are so many opportunities. Basically, we've we've spoken to automotive companies who want real intelligence in their car so that you can have, you know, you can actually talk to the car and get things done. Uh, you know, just one one uh, opportunity, gaming companies to have it as a gaming coach in medical applications uh, for a personal assistant to help you manage diabetes, for example, or any any number of other medical uh, conditions. Then we have applications in for salespeople where you want an assistant to help you manage Salesforce. Salespeople hate using Salesforce and they don't tend to use it. But if they had an iGo that where they can just say, "Tell me about my next appointment," you know, what what are his hobbies, or does he have any kids, or what product was he interested in? When you're done with your sales call, you can say to iGo, "Set this to high priority. Remind me next Tuesday to follow up. Send them brochure X and let my boss know what's going on." You know, they're just such a myriad of of applications for having an intelligent assistant, conversational assistant. And it's basically how quickly can we scale up the company to to meet that demand and, and do it well. And at the same time, to crank up the IQ of the system, to continually make the system smarter and smarter. At the moment, common sense knowledge, common sense reasoning is actually very, very hard. As, as people, even a three-year-old child, has so much common sense knowledge already by interacting with the world and interacting with other people. It's very difficult to replicate that in AI. And that's, you know, one of the, the challenges. So yeah, we have a very clear roadmap of what we what we want to do and a very, very significant uh, demand for the, the kind of AI that we have. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to you, to the world. What advice would you give that person, having gone down this road a bit, uh, a few times? You know, I've, I've thought about that question. Is And in, in a way, there isn't, in business, there really isn't sort of um, a soundbite or fortune cookie type thing that, you know, works for everyone. Because realistically, I listen to a story and say, okay, what is it that's, you know that's going to make the biggest difference so i don't think i can give give a generic answer to it because there are different things holding back different projects the one piece of advice that i do give people but this is not exactly the scenario you you're describing here is i started my first business at 25 i wish i'd started it many years earlier because if you are interested in being an entrepreneur having the actual experience doing it you know even if you do it while you're at school still and start something, it's just invaluable. They're just stuff you have to actually do. You have to actually experience it and, and do it yourself. So the sooner you can start on that and gain some experience, I think the, the, the better. But as far as the scenario you painted, I say I would, I'd have to listen to his particular story to to you know give advice of whether he should go to VCs or he should avoid VCs like the plague or whether he should get a partner or whether he needs to do more work on the technology or whether he should get patent protection or not or you know it's uh, they're really different things that makes sense 
Well, Peter, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the product creation story of iGo. Well, thanks for having me. This was fun. Thank you. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. <laughs>